Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people, your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. This is Marin Costello Radio. Folks, we have such a special guest on the show today. As the founder and CEO of Factory 45, Shannon Moore works with idea stage entrepreneurs to launch fashion brands that are sustainably and ethically made. Shannon got her start in 2010 when she co-founded Revolution Apparel, a sustainable clothing company for female travelers and minimalists that was featured in the New York Times, Forbes.com, and Yahoo News. Through her online business school, Factory 45, Shannon has worked with over 500 entrepreneurs in the sustainable fashion space, many of whom have gone on to launch some of the most transparent supply chains in the fashion industry. Shannon has worked as a consultant for crowdfunding projects that have surpassed their goal amounts by as much as 300% and has worked closely with startup apparel companies from all over the world to create ethically made products with a focus on environmentally friendly materials. Shannon is a strong advocate for increasing supply chain transparency through sourcing, localization, and storytelling. She's been named a thought leader for the future of fashion and was nominated as a woman of note by the Wall Street Journal. You are so cool. <laughs> I was just thinking, mm, maybe I should shorten my bio. <laughs> no, I'm like, give me more. That's the best. How are you today? I'm great, Marin. How are you? Living the dream. Living Good. the dream. This is so, I think one of the, the most fascinating things that I have come to learn about you is that you've lived so many lives in this one lifetime. Mm-hmm. I love how you have given yourself permission to reinvent yourself and reinvent, you know, what you do and and what you're doing in the world and what you're producing for work in the world. Where does that sense of permission come from? It's a very common theme on the show. Uh, Maybe being the oldest child. (laughs) I feel like that is uh, just, you know, birth order can help with that stuff. No, I mean, I think that, um, I don't know. I I do think there is something to be said for just like genetics, lottery, uh, privilege, you know, all those things that sort of come from like being able to take risks. I'm in a very fortunate uh, position and have been raised in a way that, you know, my parents said, you know, try it. They encouraged um, me to try new things, to fail, to um, explore. You know, I'll never forget when I graduated right in the middle of actually the very beginning, 2008 of the financial crisis. And I was a journalism major. And I said to my parents, you know, I don't think I'm going to try to get a real job right now. I'm going to uh, book a one-way ticket to Australia and see what happens. And they were like, okay, you can do that. We're not going to support you um, financially. You know, we'll support you uh, emotionally, but not financially. And so they were like, go figure it out. And that was probably the beginning of sort of getting out of my bubble, the childhood town I grew up in and really, you know, exploring what it meant to be my own person, make my own decisions and uh, try things. That's amazing. On that note, tell us about little Shannon. What was little Mm -hmm. Shannon like? (laughs) 
the eldest, the eldest sibling. (laughs) Yes. Little Shannon. I mean, if you ask my parents, little Shannon was a pain in the ass. Um, I was very, I mean, now they say it's so funny because now I have a daughter and I have a, my son is the oldest and I have a younger daughter. Um, and my son is exactly like I was as a kid, very strong willed, um, just knows what he wants and doesn't want anyone to get in the way and doesn't care, you know, if it doesn't go with the agenda. And so nowadays, you know, they say that's like, it's, it's, what do they say? It's like back then with, with my generation, it was like, oh, she's bossy. And now they just say, no, she's going to be a boss. Um, and so that's what I think really happened was I was a kid who, you know, had strong leadership skills, we'll put it that way. Um, and that had, was a hard, hard thing for my parents to navigate, but ended up really serving me as an adult. Do you remember your first exposure to entrepreneurship? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. It was probably something like most people, like having a lemonade stand. Um, as a kid, I do remember like set or, you know, my, my dad's giving me a quarter, um, for every weed that I pulled out of. That's probably just a chore, not entrepreneurship, but little things like that, like little, uh, earning opportunities to sort of explore what it was like to make your own money and figure out how to spend it. And okay, well, that was cool. I got to buy this with, with that money. How can I earn more money? Um, by doing other things and, and yeah, making bracelets or in selling them, whatever it was. Yeah. Same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Of course for you. Do you remember your first exposure to conscious businesses and sustainable businesses or was it your own? Yeah, it was probably my own. Um, I didn't really know anything about conscious business or social impact. Like I said, I was a journalism major in college. I wasn't a business major. It wasn't really something actually entrepreneurship 101 was a class I took. It was my worst grade in college. I, that is such a common theme for folks to be so brilliant in their respective fields in entrepreneurship, but put them in a, in a school environment in a, in a, you know, a, traditional, formal, structured learning environment. And it's, you know, all shit hits the fan. Yeah. Professor Rossi, if he could see me now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, how funny. That is so funny. Was your first exposure to the supply chain also with your brand? Yes. Didn't know what a supply chain was. Um, I just learned, okay, well, if you want to make something, if you want to make something physical, you need the materials to make that thing. So, okay, we need to go get our fabrics. We need to go get our drawstrings, our buttons. Where are all those? Okay, well, if we source them within a 50 mile radius, that's a lot easier than, you know, a thousand dollar radius or a thousand mile radius, you know? So thinking about those things, um, it was definitely with first with my brand. Can you walk us through that process? Because I think a lot of steps go missing unless you're in it. I don't feel like there's a lot of exposure to, you know, from concept to execution of a product and everything that goes into the middle of those two steps within the supply chain. Can you walk us through what that was like for you and what you would also suggest folks to do now if they have an idea to make a physical product? Sure. Yeah. Especially now supply chains, like such a hot button issue because of Mm -hmm. everything that's going on in the world. Um, And, you know, without getting too much in the weeds about it, it setting up your supply chain is really like getting the things, the actual materials you need to create that end product. And those are usually going to be sourced 
from all different places, um, depending on what it is. So, you know, you think about um, just like where things come from, where things are made. For us, it was very important that we wanted a U.S., a local supply chain, not because it's like U.S. is better, but because that was where we were. So it was easier for us to visit our supply chain partners, which I think is so important. And I tell my entrepreneurs that I work with, you have to be able to go to your factory. You have to be able to visit your suppliers and build relationships with them and see where each step of your process is made, which is a hard thing to do um, because most of us, you know, most of it is happening in internationally or in a place that we're, we don't have easy access to. So for us and for our brand, it was the buttons were wooden buttons that came from Brooklyn and the, the wood was sourced from trees in Vermont and the drawstrings were organic cotton and the cotton was grown in Texas and it was uh, made in North Carolina. Like all of these things we knew exactly, the fabric was made out of recycled water bottles and organic cotton and blended together in a mill in North Carolina. So just like all of these little things to be able to answer those questions, oh, the raw material comes from this place and then it's knitted in this place. Um, um, was such a rare thing, especially back in 2010 when, you know, you didn't even use the word sustainable and fashion together. I know you are such a trailblazer in that space. And I do want to get into that eventually on this chat. There's so many questions my, I have to ask you. Oh, my goodness. How long did it take you to, to find all of those supply chain, like to find your supply chain family? Yeah, it was really like a year and a half to two years. We actually launched our product and raised money through pre-selling before we even had a factory. We were just, it took so long that we were just like, okay, we have to do something to like change the energy, change the trajectory of where we were at a standstill. So we were like, we're going to get our samples out there. We're going to take photos. We're going to pre-sell this product, even though we don't know how we're going to make it. And the funny thing is, of course, like once you have money, all the doors open. Totally. When you, cause I now learned this with my brand now that we're doing high volume, how do you advise your students and your clients to approach factories if they are just starting out, if they're still in the development process of their product, if they don't necessarily have the leverage to say, Hey, I want to develop this product, but here are five to 10 products that we know exactly what we want. And we're going to, you know, get on a recurring basis of ordering hundred to a thousand of these every, every month, every two months, you know, if you don't have that locked in business, how do you suggest that they approach factories? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, um, my recommendation is start to build the relationship early. So even if you aren't quite ready to go into production yet, you are, especially if like you're doing your product development somewhere else, and you just want to use the factory for production, talk to them about their production calendar, their lead times, when they may have an opening, what you're, you know, what you're working on, how you plan to launch and have the capital to go into production. Like these can, this conversation can happen in a series of emails that take, you know, a couple weeks, months, it can happen on the phone, a zoom, but really like putting in the time to build the relationship. So then when it does come time to say, Hey, I'm ready to go into production, but I only want to produce a hundred units, which is a small production run there. They already know you have your stuff together. You have, uh, they know like the relationship, the brand you're trying to build. They know you've raised the money to 
fund the production run, you know, pay for it. Um, and so I think that it has shown to be very successful for the entrepreneurs that I'm working with. What would you say is the typical timeline for someone to expect if they have an idea, like from idea to launch, what does that timeline look like? Yeah, I say six months to two years. Mm -hmm. Six months is very short. That is if you know exactly what you're going to create, you're a little bit past idea stage and you're doing this full-time. You don't have a part-time job or a full-time job or, you know, a family that you're raising. Um, that's like a very short timeline. And I would say realistically, it's more like a year to 18 months. So in this culture of immediate gratification, mm -hmm. I imagine that maybe there's a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of anxiety that comes with that news when you're delivering that. Cause now that I'm in it, I totally get it. I mean, I have decades of this beast under my belt, but in first starting, there is, you know, a lot of pressure and a lot of, um, you know, there is this, this environment where if you don't launch it today, then you're late. Yep. Yeah. So I, how I, do you combat that for your students? And this is the thing I get, I get this pushback all the time. You know, my program is, I would say like, it used to be a six month program and now I, it's a lifetime program. Cause I'm like, six months is not long enough. I was having all these people graduate and then I'm like, go fly baby bird. And they're having to, you know, launch after the program is over. So we changed it to be a lifetime access for that reason. And I get pushback still. It's like, oh, but why is the program so long? Like, what can I do this in three months? Oh, I've already done these things. Can I do it faster? No. <laughs> like, if you want to do this right, if you want to do it successfully, this is how long it will take in that range of six months to two years. And again, I see it more as the average a year to uh, 18 months. Year to year and a half. Mm -hmm. You've worked with a partner. You've also worked by yourself. And by yourself, I mean, as one, one woman leading the ship. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the difference between partnership in that way versus spearheading your own company? Sure. Yeah. So with my clothing brand, I had a co-founder. It was, she, I, I would never have gotten as far as we did without her. It, the accountability of having a co-founder, because every time you want to quit or every time you're like, this is not going to happen. I don't see how this is going to happen, which happens a lot. You have that other person that's either going to say, no, we can do this or yeah, how are we going to do this? And then she'll make you be the one who's like, no, come on, we are going to do this. So it's that back and forth, which is invaluable. The accountability invaluable. Um, with being kind of like the solo founder now in the company that I've been running since 2014, um, you're the decision maker, right? So there's no, like, maybe there's internal conflict, but you're not having conflict with another person about what's the right course. What should we do? Where should we take this? Um, and now I have a pretty significant team around me. I have a bunch of people I'm working with, so it doesn't feel like I'm so much alone, but I think in that first experience of entrepreneurship, you know, I had never done that before. I was fresh out of college. Uh, it was, it was so great to have a co-founder and I don't regret one minute of it. We talked when we first met about what to name your company <laughs> and how to name your company and how so many founders get stuck on that 
one moment, what was your advice to me and to them? Just name it. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I think I said, I've never liked any company I've ever named. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that's what I I tell people. I'm like, you're never, especially now with every URL being taken already, somebody sitting on that domain, um, you're never really gonna, I mean, if you come up with a perfect name, great for you, but most people don't. So just name it, move forward. If you can find the domain and the social media handles, and it's not already trademarked, move forward. How did you know it was time to separate from your former co-founder and go on your own journey? I think it was that we really didn't expect the success that we had. We, we went into it being like, all right, we're going to try entrepreneurship and we're going to, you know, we gave ourselves this much money to spend and that was our budget. And if we could do it under that budget in a certain amount of time, then we were, you know, great. And then we launched the highest funded fashion project in Kickstarter history. And we raised all this other money. And then we were featured in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And it was just like this amazing experience in entrepreneurship that we did not expect. We expected to fail, learn from it, and move on to something else. Um, And so then when it did come time to sort of, you know, go into another production run or think about really scaling the company, we were kind of like, do we want to keep doing this? And the answer ultimately was that we had different visions of what we wanted our business lives to look like. And so I ended up selling my portion of the business to my co-founder. She rebranded, went on to do her own thing. And then I started consulting on just kind of a per project basis, which eventually led me to what I do now, which is Factory 45. How long were you consulting before you decided to create the Factory 45 platform? It was about a year. What was the aha moment of, oh, this needs to reach more people. Yeah, it was very much that I realized I wanted to work with startups, but the startups couldn't afford, you know, consulting rates, retainers of multiple thousands of dollars a month. Um, And so I was like, how can we scale this so that I can, and this was in the beginning when like online programs, now there's an online program for everything, right? It's like totally saturated the market at the time. It was Factory 45 was one of, if not the only online fashion education program. Um, And so that was pretty cool to kind of see these other models that were working for other niches and, and areas of business and take that into the fashion space. Because really, it was like you either went to fashion school or you went to like a fashion incubator in person. Um, There was no like online option. And so that opened the doors to a lot of people, which um, looking back, yeah, it was just really cool. That's awesome. What was your first hire with Factory 45? An assistant. So how did you know that you needed an assistant? Because I knew that I shouldn't be the one like putting blog posts up on WordPress and putting my emails into active campaign and um, doing like data entry stuff. Like the the kind of details, those things that um, are not your zone of genius are, are the, is the first thing that should be outsourced. And how long were you doing those things by yourself before hiring that person? I think I did it for, the, for a year, for the first program, which was my beta program. I only took on 10 entrepreneurs. 
I invested all of the money back into the company because I was bartending on the side still part-time. Um, and then I was able to use that money to hire the next year an assistant. What sacrifices have you made in the structure of your life to have Factory 45 thrive? Oh, that's a good question because now I, I feel like it's hard to remember. I'm sure there's something. Now I feel like I'm in such a good place with work-life balance, but it, I didn't get there obviously in eight plus years right away. Um, maybe just, you know, maybe this isn't exactly answering your question, but I think there's something to be said for the sacrifice of like the social component of you go to a party or you go home for Christmas with your relatives and you tell people you're starting your own business or you're running your own business. And it's kind of like that look, like almost, a, especially as a woman, like they discredit you, right? It's like, okay, Shannon with her cute little like side project. Um, and they, and they're still, you know, for years, it was like, well, when's Shannon going to get a real job? You know, like even when I was making six figures with my company, it was like, well, okay, well, what, what's she really going to do? So I think maybe that sacrifice of just being able to say, you know, I, I don't care what other people think, you know, I'm just going to kind of block out the opinions of my family and friends who are the cynics and the doubters. Um, yeah. How long did it take you to get to that place? Because that is a very healthy place, but I, as someone who has been there before, it doesn't feel healthy mm. once you first make that separation or once you first um, embrace radical acceptance of other people's opinions. How long did that take you? Yeah. Oh, I'm like still sometimes like, <laughs> like, mm, should I get a real job? Um, no, I, um, it, no, it takes a while. I think it's a constant you're grapp grappling with it constantly, especially, you know, we're going like, there's all this talk of a recession and all that. And you're like, okay, I've never run a business during a recession. What's that going to be like? Well, maybe I should, you know, but it, it's all just like the monkey mind, right? It's all that like self-doubt imposter syndrome. I talk about a lot with my entrepreneurs and you just have to get to a place where you're, you, it's almost like you have to be confident, not knowing it's not even like confident that everything's going to be fine. And this is the right move. Cause I don't think you can ever realistically get there, but confident with not knowing and knowing that, like, if it's not going to go the way you want to go, you're going to figure something else out that you're resilient, you're resource resourceful and, and you'll, and you'll just make something work, even if it's not the thing currently. And that, that was the story of my life, right. Is like, clothing brand, consulting, online pro program. It was kind of like when things didn't feel right, you, you pivot, you redirect, you re-navigate. And, and that I think you just have to be com get comfortable doing. I imagine that you have students who run the gamut of experience from the gamut of where they are in their business. Um, what are some themes though that come up in your advisory to them that are consistent that maybe you see in every graduating class that most every entrepreneur you know, in that space will experience. Yeah. The roller coaster. It's mm. a cliche, but like that entrepreneurial roller coaster, the highs and lows. I don't think generally speaking as entrepreneurs, we do a great job of celebrating our wins 
And that's something like I, especially again, as women, I think we can tend to down, this is a generalization, but kind of downplay our wins and our successes. Um, and so that's something that I'm constantly pushing my entrepreneurs. Okay. There's going to be a low because that's how this goes. So let's focus on this win right now, really appreciating it, being grateful, patting yourself on the back, do something like whether that's like popping a bottle of champagne or like buying yourself like the $7 oat milk latte, like do something to like really (laughs) celebrate the moment. You have such amazing press and you have gotten such amazing press from all of your businesses. How would one go about getting press? Yeah, the the majority of the press I've gotten is has been DIY. So it's just me. Um, like I'll I there was definitely a time in 2014, especially that was my way to launch Factory 45. It was all content marketing, and so I was I spent I think I launched in April. I spent all of March pitching publications, media, other blogs to do guest posts and interviews, and that was like the way I spread the word. Um, so I think, you know, creating a pitch, an email pitch, that's very short, gets straight to the point. I think I get pitched a lot from, to, you know, cover like on my podcast or our blog or whatever, and getting those long winded pitches that are just like multi-paragraphs, keep it short. That's what people want. Um, and really, um, you know, my best advice is to, is to focus the pitch on what you can add as value to that outlet's audience. Like it's not about you, it's about their audience. So crafting your pitch in that way. Um, and so then once you get the ball rolling and you like, it does take a lot of work, especially if you're going to DIY it, you have to really, you're sending pitches and you just have to put it on your to-do list and say, okay, today I'm going to send five pitches and tomorrow I'm going to send another five. And then once you do that and you start to get some press, the, the ball starts to roll and, and you have people reaching out to you. You have people saying, Hey, I want to cover you. And that's what sort of happened. But Marin, you've had amazing press too. Well, mine has been organic though. And I, and I think it's, my story is different because it was, you know, a hobby turned business for many, many, many years And I didn't wake up one day and go, cool, I'm going to start a company. Mm -hmm. Like the company happened really without me Mm -hmm. having that intention. Of course, when I set the intention that that changed the way that things worked. But, but I think nowadays there's a lot more folks who, you know, my story in entrepreneurship is definitely the minority. There's a lot more folks who have an idea or have, um, you know, a mission to set out and start something on their own. Um, And I didn't really understand the value of press when it was happening again, because it was during my college years or of course, you know, we get, we get things now, but I think the first time that we got press, I didn't quite understand the beast of it and, Mm -hmm. and how valuable it really is. Yeah. I mean, so lucky that you just didn't even have to like really work for it. Right. Like that Mm -hmm. it came to you. That's so amazing. And as you said, that's not like, typical, right? Usually it's like someone hires like a publicist or you're doing your own. Um, But I do think that it does start to become more organic either way. Like you can start off organic or you put in the work in advance and then people start to come to you in an organic way. Let's Let's talk about how you launched your online business because when you first launched, like you said, you know, currently there's so many different products that are available, but when you first launched, 
there wasn't, there weren't as many templates. There wasn't, you know, as many outlets that people could go to, to, you know, take someone's framework, take someone's roadmap and create their own. Mm -hmm. How in the world did you do it? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I, again, I started with a beta program. I knew one thing and anyone who wants to start an online program, do not create your program before you sell it, right? This is like this, this Mm. major business advice that I have with any product. I, this is what we do in factory 45 with my entrepreneurs. They don't create products at mass scale until they've sold it. We use a total pre-selling method. And that's what I did with my program. So I created the first basically module sold, pre-sold it. And then as I was running the beta program for 10 people, I created the program as we were going. So like we'd start with, you know, the first module, the first month. And then while that was running, I was creating the second module and then the third, fourth, fifth. And so I, it wasn't fancy. It was on, I don't even know if this platform still exists, but it's called Basecamp. It was on Basecamp. It was just very bare bones and basic. Um, but I was giving one-on-one support and I was obsessed with the customer experience. I was obsessed with giving my clients wins at every point, um, getting them to launch ultimately, right? Which they all did. Um, so that was, I, I really did a lot of handholding because I knew I had to over-deliver. The second year, like I said, I invested all the money. So everyone paid $3,000. I invested that 30,000 total back into the business. And that's when I created a fancier website on WordPress and it was more customized and the videos and everything was more highly produced. Um, But again, obsessed with the customer experience, had 30 people. Um, And then it just kind of scaled from there and I kept going. And, you know, now we have about 160 people in the program, um, but still, you know, the ultimate, I think the key to my success and the reason that Factory 45 is a first-in-class, world-class program that I can charge, you know, $6,000 per student for is because I am so just committed to the end goal of getting these brands to launch. Let's talk about pricing and how one prices oneself. So I'd love to talk about your journey in pricing your service. Mm -hmm. And then also on the flip side, how do you advise your students to price their physical products? Mm, Pricing, oh, so complicated. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't that complicated for me. I started out, it was a six month program. It was $500 a month for six months, so $3,000. When in 2021, I expanded it to be a lifetime program with lifetime support, lifetime access, then I uh, shifted everything into a 12-month payment plan. So doubled the price, but it was an extended timeline. So they were still paying the same amount every month. I knew that you know, for a startup, for first-time entrepreneurs, $500 was still, you know, on the higher side, especially compared to most programs. When it comes to pricing for just my entrepreneurs and and their fashion brands, it's all based on, as you know, cost of goods sold. So what does it cost to make your product? Um, And what, 
the markup is for whether you're selling direct to consumer or you're going to sell wholesale. So like in boutiques or stores. Um, and so you want at least a 2X markup, a double the markup, but I say usually 2.5 to 3X. And then it's also based on price tolerance of your customer, right? Like if you're a luxury brand and you're going after that luxury market, those people are willing to pay more. Um, so I think it's sort of finding that line or that balance between your cost of goods sold and the price tolerance of your customer. It's such a, it's such a delicate dance mm -hmm. that we do, especially in the jewelry space, because what I've noticed is that it, the jewelry is the wild west. Like there is stuff that is presented as a certain quality, but it's actual shit. And then yeah. there's stuff that's, you know, solid gold, but then in the, in the fine jewelry space, people are charging, you know, $500 for one thing. And the same thing from another brand is $50,000. Like mm -hmm. there's really, there's really no um, common ground when it comes to pricing. So it really, that's hard. Really that complicated. Makes it, yeah. That makes it really, really hard. I think it can be very similar for fashion in some, in some ways. Yeah. You, you, they're the sustainable, ethically made brands that charge, you know, $600 for a dress and then the hem falls apart, you know, you, so it, it's, it's hard. Um, but I do think starting with that baseline of your cost of goods sold and price tolerance can at least get you to kind of like a starting point at least. I would love to go back and talk about your pre-selling model. Mm -hmm. You call it a recession-proof business model. How does one create or how does one market a product that essentially doesn't exist yet? And to whom? How do they know who their audience is? Yeah. So it starts with um, educated guessing, right? That's what entrepreneurship is, is an educated guessing game. So you identify who your ideal target customer is for you, for your brand. And then you know what? It's probably going to change. But the only way you know how it's going to change is by putting it out there and starting to talk to your customer and creating content aimed towards this ideal customer and seeing if it hits. It could be that the customer is wrong. It could be that your content's wrong. It could be that your product's wrong. But the only way you're going to figure that out is by doing it. And so that's why I say before you create any, any inventory, before you go into production, start by putting yourself out there and building an audience. You can do this by the first, the first way that I recommend is by building your email list. You can do this on Instagram. You can do this on TikTok, whatever social media platforms your ideal customer is using is hanging out on. And just, it's a test. It's a test every time you put a piece of content out there and photos of your samples, you're really walking people through the behind the scenes journey of building your company so that by the time you do launch with a pre-sales campaign, they're invested in you. They're connected with you. They, they, are, they are excited about what you're creating. And that's what ultimately will lead them to open their wallets and say, yes, I believe in what you're creating. I want to be on the, on the forefront of that. I'm going to give you my hard earned money and I'm going to invest in this product so that you can go into production and create the, the brand that you have been working on. How much money would you advise your students to have minimum for 
releasing a product for developing a product? What is like a healthy amount of, of money that they should have? Just for the development? Mm-hmm. I would say I've, well, I've seen people do it on a $5,000 budget. I've seen people do it on a $20,000 budget. I would say that you probably need at least $5,000, but you don't need it all right now. Like if you're sitting here today, you're listening to this and you're thinking that you want to start a fashion brand. Oh, I don't have $5,000 just sitting in my savings account. Like most people don't, you can do it in increments so that you're like putting a little bit Maybe you do one sample and one pattern one month, right? And then you wait a little bit and you save up more money or you, you know, get that part-time job or do those, um, that side hustle job to invest a little bit more into the next pattern and sample. I've seen so many, you know, I think of one brand, Sotella, Hannah was, um, she was working in transportation planning. Like while she was starting her brand, she was, community an hour back and forth. And she just did it very slowly, very methodically. And now she has a brand that she has sustained since 2015. She has a cult following. People love her. Um, and she did it very slowly. I think it took her close to two years to launch. Amazing. For your company personally, how do you create structure within your team? Um, Structure within my team. So I think that I was very slow to hire, right? Like I did it all with my assistant. It was like me and my assistant and then my web designer who eventually became my creative director. Very, it was just like I was doing it all. So I think now that I have like I have my creative director, I have my director of operations, I have a director of enrollment, I have like 13 alumni mentors who work in the program, like there's a big team now. I think it's having clearly defined roles. And that's how I hired. It was like, okay, I'm hiring this person for this specific thing. Other than my assistant, who was more like of a generalist, like she jack of all trades, which I think is very important as your first hire. I think you when you think about hiring and, and structure, you want to think about like, okay, where, where can I hire in a certain person's zone of genius so that they're going to thrive, they're going to bring money into the company, because that's ultimately their job is to bring money into the company. Um, and so that you aren't having all this churn and like, oh, well, they couldn't do this. So like, I have to fire them. Maybe it was just the wrong role for them. That's genius. What are your favorite apps, both personally and professionally, in keeping everything right and tight? Asana. I live by my Asana. If my Asana gets hacked, I will (laughs) (laughs) um, melt. Um, So that's my task management, my to-do list. Um, We use Trello as well. That's what I use with my team. Um, We use Slack. We use Google Drive. Uh, I would say those are the main, the main ones. Those are, I think the, the usual contenders. Yeah. yeah there's nothing that gene like out of the box boxer. That's how I talk to like my alumni mentors. Um, but yeah, the usual suspects Dropbox. <laughs> I love that. What does your personal schedule look like? How does that structure look? 
Um, right now it's a little crazy, as you know, for, for scheduling and rescheduling. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a four month old, so I'm working around, we do have an, a part-time nanny, but working around, like, um, I have certain blocks where I know like she'll be napping or out of the house with my nanny or my husband. And, uh, I can do a recording like this. Um, you just kind of saw her walk behind me and go into her nursery. <laughs> so yeah. it doesn't always work out, but, um, but I think just having those blocks of time. So I know, okay, I can just like do things like quickly on my computer and not have to be camera ready or, you know, have it be quiet behind me. Um, but I will say having kids and I have two kids, has just made me really good at time management. I think before a task could take me like two hours and now it's like, oh, all right, got to bang that out in 30 minutes because I have no other option. I was going to say like 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your strategy on parenting? Oh, I don't know if I have a strategy. Co-parenting, that's the key, um, is having a, a partner who, um, you know, he's very busy. He's an entrepreneur as well and um, has a tight schedule as well, but knowing that it's a balancing act, that his work isn't more important than my work and my work isn't more important than his work, that we have to work together. Um, you know, daycare <laughs> helps, um, having, having one kid in school, having help, having a nanny. I think that it's just like a constant, you never have it figured out, but it's, it's fun. And it's just, you know, more kind of team building and, um, you know, time management. On that note of time management, how do you schedule your day? Is it in 30-minute blocks, hour blocks, 15-minute blocks? I imagine you to be the master of time blocking. Can you kind of give us like a 20-second tutorial on how it's how it's worked well for you? Yes. Oh, I don't even know. Like when I so basically I map out like the time, the time blocks of day, which well, so it's complicated now because again, not to get into the weeds, but like with a baby, you have wake windows. So you have like 45 minute wake windows when they're a certain age. And then it goes to like an hour and a half and then two hours. So I was using wake windows to figure out my schedule, which is crazy. Um, but it translates into that idea of time blocking. So I, um, tried to now block like anything again that I'm doing on camera where I need to be camera ready. I'll I schedule those for Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. And I know like not to schedule ever, anything in there. I mean, an exception for you, Marin. but <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but generally that's how it works. And like, I'll record my own podcast during those times. Um, and then otherwise it's kind of, I just, I create buckets. So it's like content, written content, um, video content, and then kind of like just the, like, uh, you could call it review or editing. Like if I have to review our social media calendar or our content calendar, whatever it is talking to my team. So I don't think that's that helpful, but I do think what you said is like the blocking out and then just creating those buckets where you can plug the bucket into that time block. Genius. What is your advice on selecting a mate? Oh, I was like a mate. Um, <laughs> I, oh gosh, I don't know if I have any advice. Um, well, I think that there's something to be said for making sure that you are a whole person before you select that mate. So 
um, when I think about my husband and I met um, because our business partners at the time arranged just like a business meeting. And that's how we met in San Francisco. And we met as two whole people. We weren't looking for the other person to um, make, we weren't looking at, at it as like two halves making a whole. And I think that people often like, there's this glamorized like movie version of like, I just need to find my person because then, you know, I'll, it will solve everything and I'll get my shit together and everything will come together. And like that, I find that get your shit together, do what you want to do, focus on your goals, focus on your dreams and the right person will be doing the same. And you'll eventually come together in a way that is healthier and just better for a long-term future. It's amazing. What is next for factory 45? Oh man. Um, and also know, on that note, how far in advance do you plan? Do you dream? Do you think for your company? I, um, used to plan like a year in advance, I would say six months to a year. And I knew exactly where we were going and what the next goal was. I think now where I've gotten to a place where my team is bigger, I've kind of reached, like I wanted to scale to a certain amount and I did it and now we're here. And so what is next? Well, I had a baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was like a big focus. It was very much like, okay, get through maternity leave slash, well, whatever my version of maternity leave was, you know, didn't take it all off, but, um, and making sure that like the business didn't suffer that I had a team in place to take over um, and that my customers, my clients were still seeing successes that they didn't suffer as well. So it was kind of, it's, I've been in a season of maintenance and I think that's okay. I, I think that there is this hustle cult. Well, we know there's this hustle culture of like, okay, what's the next thing? Where am I going? What's the next revenue marker, whatever those benchmarks are. And just to know that if you are running a business right now and you're in a season of maintenance, that's okay. If you're just kind of coasting along right now, that's okay. And you can get to sort of that climb again eventually, but if you don't know how you're going to get there, that's okay too. And I think that's where I am is just making sure the business is sustainable, that we are still having big wins for the people that we serve and focusing on them right now. And, you know, come like, January, maybe I'll start to reevaluate and see what 2023 is going to bring, but I'm very much okay with where we are at the current. That's so awesome. What would your advice be to a budding entrepreneur? Start before you're ready. And mm -hmm. I know that's really hard advice. We all want the timing to be perfect and to have the nice name to be right. <laughs> yes. Going back to that, the name to be the perfect name. Um, yeah. It's for, you know, for all the stars to be aligned, it's just, it very rarely happens that way. Um, it also, especially, you know, specifically with a product based business, whether that's jewelry, fashion, whatever it is, it's going to take you longer than you think it's going to always takes longer than you think it's going to. So start now because you're going to be waiting on suppliers, manufacturers, pattern makers, sample makers, whatever it is, you're going to be waiting on those people. And so you don't need to have the money in the bank right now. I'm teaching a free workshop. I can tell you exactly why you don't. Um, maybe we can link to that, but um, 
with the pre-sale model, but you know, just start before you're ready, because if you don't, then you're going to, you're going to wish that you had eventually, because it always takes longer. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's my best piece of advice. Start before you're ready. I love that. Just to kind of give our entrepreneurs some, some peace about that. I've been working on one chain link. I mean, we have upward of 300 pieces in the line. I've been working on one chain link for nine months and it's still not there yet. So yes, do give yourself grace in the timeline that you think it's going to take you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you also, when you start before you're ready, you're not rushing the process. There isn't like, Oh, well, I should have started months ago. You know, you're giving yourself that grace. Exactly. Exactly. Like that timeline to sort of do it on the pace that works for you and your lifestyle. And similarly, when we switched everything from, you know, a myriad of materials to stainless steel, I mean, it took us two, three years to really get to have all the products that we used to have and all the different materials. So it does take time. Yep. Time, time is on your side and it does take time. A hundred percent. Shannon, how can we find you and how can we support you? Um, You can find me at factory45.co if you are interested in launching a fashion brand in a way that's sustainably and ethically made. You can book a call with our director of enrollment just to learn more, see if we're a good fit. Um, I'm also on Instagram at factory45co. Um, I have a podcast called Start Your Sustainable Fashion Brand. I'm on YouTube. I mean, just I'm everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) I love it. And one thing that we actually haven't formally announced, but I did want to share this with you. So why not do it on the podcast? We just finalized last week that now with every purchase from shopmaryandcostello.com, we will be planting a tree. So I thought that you would appreciate that from a sustainable standpoint. A hundred percent. Yes. I love that. We, we need that. Oh my gosh. Do we need that? Amen. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for being on the show. You are so so bright and so knowledgeable and so inspirational. And I just know that you're changing so many lives out there. Thank you so much, Marin. And thank you for the beautiful jewelry. I love it so much. I will say to anyone listening, the clasps on this jewelry, I'm obsessed. Like they're so, oh, I love them. Um, they're so easy to put on. And so thank you. I, I love it. I love it all. Well, for those who are watching the video, Shannon looks beautiful in all the jewels. <laughs> thank you. I mean, I couldn't imagine a better walking billboard. So thank you so much for wearing them on the show. Of course. Thanks, Marin. Of course. Well, folks, that interview was just incredible. A huge thank you to Shannon for coming on the show. Another thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and producers at Island City Media. If you like this episode, you can listen to it again and again on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave a review so we can continue bringing you the people and conversations that you love, just like Shannon. Lastly, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me at MarinCostello.com and MarinCostello Radio on Instagram. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Thank you so, so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week.